Mark. You're going to turn to Mark in your Bible. Uh, Mark is in the New Testament, so it's sort of towards the back. It's the second book in the New Testament. If you need a Bible, there's plenty of them on the table back there. Take one, keep it, take 20, give them out. I don't care. We'll buy more. We have plenty of Bibles. Bibles are life here. So um, take one, use it, keep it if you need to, certainly. And uh, you will need one today, I can guarantee you, because some stuff will be on the screens, but not all of it. Because I don't want you looking at screens, and I don't want you looking at me. I want you looking at his word. And when you leave here, you can take it with you and not try to remember what it said on the screen. So bring your Bible up or pick it up or whatever else and open it up. We are going through a series we've been doing for a long time now since we moved in this building called The Story of God. And we started in the very beginning before creation. Who is God before creation? And then we went through his creation and the perfectness that he made uh, as he created everything. The perfectness of word? But anyway, he made the world perfect. Uh, but sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, their decisions to rule their own kingdom, to have their own kingdom. But God, being this amazing, merciful, full of grace God, made a promise even to Eve that he would restore, he would repair, he would correct, he would uh, bring perfection back to his creation through uh, a descendant of her, a child that would come from her. And we followed from that moment forward Looking throughout history, through the Bible, we've followed points, not every word, but points, looking for that child. That led through um, a flood and a family that was preserved through the flood. That led down through the divisions of the nations and people scattering all over the place. It led through Abraham through his son Isaac, through his son Jacob, Jacob who became a family of 12 sons who had their own families and those 12 families grew and grew and grew until united they were one nation called Israel, named after their father Jacob whose name was changed to Israel. And then we followed that family uh, throughout, again, history and through the Bible as they're looking, as we're looking for this this promise, this child, we looked at as, as they were given judges, as they were given kings, as they were given prophets, as God continued to work and communicate through them. And all along, looking for this one, and we would see them sin as a nation, and God would discipline them, and then they would repent, and then they would sin. And we saw them get exiled. We saw them get brought back. We've seen all of this. And then the moment came. The seed is born. To a virgin. We've already seen that happen. He grew up. Jesus is his name. He grows up. He gets baptized. He brings to himself disciples and begins to invest in those guys uh, to entrust them for three years with the responsibility of the kingdom of God spreading to all nations. And there's others that follow him and others that are looking at him, but there's also those that oppose him. Demonic activity is at an all-time high in history. We already talked about that for two weeks. Uh, religious leaders are opposing him. Political leaders are somewhat opposing him. He's just, he's facing that as well. So we've been looking at all of that. That lands us where we are today in Mark chapter 10. And... Uh, we're just kind of bumping through his life and looking at some moments, not trying to cover everything, but this is one we chose to look at. Title is The Price for Heaven. The Price uh, for Heaven. I don't know if you've ever considered that, but there, uh, there is one. So back in 
the day, some of y'all know this, but back in the day for me, I was in a band. I was in a, in a secular band at one point, and then Christ saved my life and uh, set me on the path. I got in a Christian band. And as we were in this Christian band, we were kind of hard-edged band. We weren't in church as much. We were out in, in community doing things. And uh, one of the things we found the hardest to do was to determine what to charge. Like, how do you figure out what to charge? Um, because, you know, the gospel's free, and we would preach the gospel at our concerts. The gospel's free, and we'd be you know, freely given, freely give. We hear all that all the time. Like, how can you charge for the gospel? Well, it costs us to get there. You know what I'm saying? And, and besides that, we're losing time and whatever else um, that we could be working. But what's a fair price if we do charge? What if we charge too much? And nobody really knows who we are, so nobody's coming. Or if we charge too little, and then nobody's coming because they assume we're nobody anyway, and we know it because we're not charging. So what do you charge? Or So let's just ask people to give a donation. Well, the problem with that is then people, if they don't have to give, they're not going to give in general. So you got people coming that aren't giving anything anyway. Or you got people that are donating so much that they want to make sure you see they did it. Because I'm your biggest fan. I gave you a fortune, you know, whatever else. And the thing is, people often treat salvation like this. Um, how much or what's the least I can sacrifice and still be right with God? Or how do I be a part of all of this but remain anonymous? You know, or, or how... How much can I sacrifice and make sure everybody sees I did it? Or for sure, how, how can I make sure God knows I'm his biggest fan? You know, here's the point. I always give you guys kind of a one point. It's on the sheet back there. If you grab one, if not, it'll be up here. Again, this is not scripture. This is just me saying something. One little point to help you hold your brain where we're going. Understand that salvation is in Christ alone through grace alone. But not without personal cost. Not not without personal cost. Salvation is in Christ alone through grace alone, but not without personal cost. Look at verse 17, Mark chapter 10. Back up a little from what uh, our hero read today. She was awesome. Let's go, man. Um, I was thinking about, total side note. One of those, the verse with exceedingly astonishing. See, I'm struggling to say it now. And when I put that in there, knowing the kid was going to read that verse, I almost thought, well, how do I cut that? And I was like, there's no way not to. So I was curious. Then when you brought her up, I was like, this will be fun. But she did great. She nailed it. Good job. Okay, sorry. Back on track. Verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Interesting, this guy actually races to him and kneels down. Like he's being pretty respectful for who he is. Uh, Luke says, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have this account in them. And Luke says he's a ruler. So he's probably a leader of the Sanhedrin. We talked about who those were last week. The religious congress, more or less. He's probably one of them, or maybe not. He might just be a leader in a local synagogue, but he is an authority figure in terms of religion among the Jewish people. And so especially in this community where they are, he would have been well known for sure. Luke also says he was extremely rich. 
Like literally puts that adjective in there. Extremely rich. And Mark here says he has great possessions. You'll see that in a second. Matthew notes he was young. So if we put them all together, we got an exceedingly rich, young, very important, well-known person uh, that's come up here and kind of knelt before Christ. And if he's young, by the way, and is exceedingly wealthy, I can't say for a fact, but I would say odds are probably 99 to 1. Where did that money come from? Probably inherited it. Probably born into it. So it's no surprise that that's exactly what he's going to ask Jesus is how do I inherit heaven? Um, but pay attention to his words. Look what he says. What must I do? What must I do to inherit heaven? Now, we'll talk about this. But before we attack this dude, even as believers, let's put ourselves there a minute. Let's put our, even as believers, let's just consider what do we do to impress God? I mean, just be honest with yourself a second. I can give you, for instance, do you ever feel like God would love you more if you blank? I mean, can't love you more than giving his own son, can he? That's already done, right? Do you feel like God would answer your prayers more if you would blank? Am I saying don't strive for holiness? No. Am I saying don't try to be holy? No. I'm just saying if you feel like you're going to win something from God for it, then it's about what you're doing more so than what he's doing, right? And he's the one that's supposed to be fixing us, not us trying to get him to do what we want him to do, right? In this case, though, think about this. What must anybody do to inherit something he really defeated himself in the question what do you do to inherit something there's only one way that happens you got to be in the family that's all an inheritance comes from your family so the word itself to ask that question he's really defeating himself he has to be in the family to inherit something but Jesus kind of jumps on a little, it's almost like a little aside. He's almost like, wait a minute, before I deal with that, let's just back up a second. Why'd you call me good? Because only God is good. So are you calling me God? That's kind of what he's saying here. So are you calling me God? Because you'd be right. But he doesn't even give him a chance to answer because he knows. He already knows. But he just throws that in there. Why are you calling me good? Because only God's good. You'd be correct. Um. He's also taking a little shot here, by the way, answering his question right up front. If only God is good, and this man's not God, then we already know he's not good. No, no, matter, no matter which laws he kept or didn't keep or any of the conversation that's going to follow, He's just, he just pointed out something without directly saying it to his face. If only God is good and you're not God, then you're not him. Then you're not good in that sense. He, he's pointing that out right in front. But look what he says. Well, look at what he says exactly. Verse 19. Jesus says, you know the commandments, the law. The, he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Is that all the commandments? No. 
That's not even all the ten. But there's way more than ten. So is Jesus saying those are the only ones that matter? No, of course not. He's just making a point. You know the commandments. Here's a few of them. You you know what they are. That's what he's saying. Uh, And then verse 20, the guy responds and says, teacher, rabbi, all these I've kept from my youth. Has he really kept all of them? I mean, I don't know. I don't know the guy. We could we could go into this and look, but but what he's saying here is like a modern day version of us saying, I was born a Christian. Same kind of thing. If somebody tells you I was born a Christian, like from I was born into a Christian family, I've been a Christian all my life, they don't understand what being a Christian is. Because that's not how it works. Uh there's a death before the life of being a Christian occurs. You don't get born and you're automatically a Christian. So that's kind of what he's saying. That's an old school way of saying that. I have been faithful. I have been in church. I have kept the law, whatever, however you want to look at it. Since I, from, from my birth, it's been in my life from the beginning. I've been doing it all along. Arguably that's not true, but, um, surely he's broken some, obviously, but, but what Jesus is talking about here though is Absolute perfection. That, that's what he's talking about by spitting out, you know, the laws. He's talking about absolute perfection. Look at verse 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. We'll come back to that in a moment and said to him, you lack one thing. Man, circle it. One thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. By the way, Jesus never separates salvation from following him. Never happens. His name means salvation. Jesus, Yeshua, it means salvation. He never separates salvation from following him. There's no such thing. You, you don't get the opportunity to get saved but not follow Jesus. That that doesn't really exist. Uh, people want to argue about it. It's not. But look back at the point here. He says, you lack one thing. Man, listen, don't miss this. If you hear anything else today, definitely hear this statement. Don't worry about the one thing for him at the moment. One thing is enough. You get that? One thing is enough. He said you lack one thing. That's enough. James would put it this way later on. Uh, James 2 verse 10. He says whoever keeps the whole law. By the way, there are 613 of them. 613. So if you broke any of the 613, according to James, he says, you, you, you fail in one point, you're guilty of all of them. If you break one, you broke them all. In the, if you break American law, you become a criminal. Does that mean you've done the worst of the worst? Doesn't matter. You've broken the American law, so you are known as such. Same thing is true in this case. Matthew 19, verse 21, Jesus said, same account, but in Matthew's words, Jesus is saying, if you be perfect, go sell what you possess, and he goes on with that. You see what Jesus is doing? Jesus is making the price of heaven impossible. Jesus is making the price of eternal life an absolute impossibility. Man, the price, what's the price of heaven? Perfection. That's the price. You want to know? What's the price of heaven? 
perfection. Absolute, total perfection. And he said it before. This is not the beginning. Uh, earlier in his life, in Matt, it's recorded in Matthew 5, verse 20. You can just note it. Jesus said to this crowd, I'm going to tell you something. If you're righteous, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, unless you're better than the best of the best of the best who had the entire Bible memorized, who teach the Bible, who pass it on, the scribes who hand write it to pass it on, unless you're better than them, you're never going to get there. In fact, in the same talk in verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's God's house, right? He's perfect. It's perfection that dwells in his house. And honestly, don't be shook by that because that's what we want, right? When you describe heaven, do you ever describe it as I have to keep my doors locked in case somebody jumps the fence and comes in and tries to shoot and rob me? No, you want a perfect place. You want a place where there's no more hate and there's no more violence and there's no more tears and there's no more. Well, that comes with perfection. So it's not a bad thing that he's saying that. But that means that you got to be perfect to be there. Right? This is literally what he's, he's pointing out here. And by the way, did you catch this? By the way, he threw this little side note in there. He'll come back to it in a second. He says that he's telling them that it's impossible to get there, but they can also build treasure there. He's telling this guy to sell all he wants, but he's uh, sell all this stuff, but he's also talking about building treasure in heaven. What's treasure in heaven? Don't need gold. Gold is a rock, in case you didn't know. <laughs> Just a rock. Don't need that. He'll tell you what it is in a second. Look at verse 22. Disheartened by this saying, or by his, by the saying, but the guys heard what Jesus said about being perfect. He's got to sell all of his stuff and he goes away sorrowful because he had great possessions. The treasure on earth was more important than the treasure in heaven. Scary thing here, by the way. Very scary thing. Notice he's very sorrowful. Feeling sorry for your sin is not the same as repenting. That's a that's a tough one. You can feel real guilty about your sin, but that's not the same as repenting. This guy feels real sad, real sorrowful, real guilty, and walks away. Walks away. That mind, look back at verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. We got a lot of ways to share the gospel. I've been in church for a pretty good while, and, and I'm just speaking on the south, but we could talk about it anywhere. There's so many people who believe they have the perfect way to do it, the gimmick of the month. You know, Josh, and what he does, I know you see it all the time, too. Like, we have determined the technique that's going to work, the acronym, the, the, the giveaway, the hook, the whatever else, the mathematical equation that's going to make them say yes, you know, the... The tool that I can get out that's proven to get them to pray a prayer with you and do whatever else. But Jesus does something more here, way more. Jesus knows he's a sinner, obviously. For one, you can say, well, Jesus could see his heart. Okay, good, yeah, but we all know everyone is a sinner. We know that. So you already know there's something there. So we, we all know, but Jesus knows he's a sinner, and regardless of what he's claiming... 
Jesus exposes it, brings it to light. Now, does Jesus go up to him and say, well, here's the Ten Commandments. Let me show you the ten that you've broken. Let me show you the four that you've broken. Let me let you admit the four that you've broken. No, he doesn't do that. He lets the man ask him first. Remember, this all started with the man running up and saying, what must I do? Jesus didn't yank a rich guy out and say, let me give you heaven, man. But first, you've got to get rid of all that blah, blah, blah. He didn't do that. This guy came to him. This guy gave Jesus the opportunity to be honest with him. And he was. Well, you think it was hard for that man to hear? Of course. Why do you think it says Jesus loved him? It's telling you Jesus' heart in the matter. He knows this is not going to be appreciated. He knows it's not going to be appreciated. But it also telling you he's got genuine love for this guy. Think about this. This is a lost man, a lost sinner who is going to reject Jesus right now, and he still loves him. And that ain't like the way we look at it. Hey, you know, he's positive about the situation. I'm not going to be beat up about that. I'm not going to be defeated. On to the next one, you know, not going to be discouraged. No, he loved the guy. You could arguably say it hurt him, Jesus. Hurt him. You know? That's a different approach. What's it going to take for us to use that approach? Sacrifice, time, humility, you know, getting rid of a goal. Got to get this guy, man. Got to get this guy. I mean, he came to me like he came and asked me like we got to get him to the front. He's got to pray. We're going to chase him down till he does. You know, all of those things. Risk. What if they hate me for what I'm about to point out to them? Yo, verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it'll be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were amazed. Are you this guy? Him? Really? Like, I imagine when that guy, because I'm sure they knew who he was. When that guy came up and hid his knees in front of Jesus and said, what must I do? They were probably like, yes, we get him on board. And this thing is going to roll like we're going to be building a mega church right beside the temple. You know, I don't know. That's me adding. Please don't quote me. Uh, but either way, they're amazed at what he's saying. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus said again to them. So Jesus like, hold on. This is a teaching moment. You know what I'm saying? Hold on, dude. Guys, guys, guys. I got to have you get this. Particularly the disciples. This is what he's saying. This is, all, this is going to be your responsibility one day. So let me just back up a minute and make sure you get this. Let me say it again. He's saying children, not little kids. He's talking as a fatherly figure to the men, the men he's discipling. And these were young men. The disciples were most likely all fairly young men. How difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God in general. In general, he's saying, he goes on, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. Why particularly, though, difficult for the wealthy? He's brought that up a couple of times. Wealth is not a problem. God blessed many people with wealth in the Bible. The temple was a picture of wealth that God specifically ordained to be built that way. Uh, the wealth is not the issue, but what the problem is, is resources typically, 
among the wealthy, among all of us, it's just that wealthy have it typically, but among all of us, really, resources become sources of comfort rather than Christ. The resources that we have become our source of comfort instead of Christ. Or possessions become our security rather than the presence of Jesus as our security. And the wealthy just have a better opportunity to do it. But we all do it. We all do it. Um, Verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished. Just blown away. And they said, well, then who can be saved? They're straight shocked. A camel through the eye of a needle. I've heard a lot of people, especially prosperity preachers, oddly enough, come up with all kinds of cool explanations for what that quote really means. But you don't have to be smart to figure out what it's saying. The the needle is a sewing instrument. You can look at the language. You think it's some different meaning. It's not. Look it up if you want to. It is a sewing needle. A camel might come to a complete shock for you is an animal that's fairly large and the point he's making is the the large animal going through the little opening in the needle can that happen is that ever going to happen i hope that's a no Uh, thank you bro come on give it to me big man yes thank you somebody somebody knows and from the mouths of children the rest of us are still doubting y'all afraid to say because you think i got a hook coming out no hook it's impossible It can't be done. That's the point. That's his point. Look at verse 27. Jesus looked at him and said, with man, it is impossible. That's his whole point. It can't be done. It is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Or you could say, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. Because he can do anything. Anything. The entire point of this is the whole passage, the whole point of this is with man, it is impossible. What's the price of heaven? Well, you can't spend enough to get there. You can't buy enough to get there. You can't leave behind enough to get there. You can't be good enough to get there. You can't do enough good deeds to get there. You can't give up enough to get there. You can't pray enough to get there. You can't repent enough to get there. I'm just saying. You can't do anything enough to get there. Why? Because with man, it's impossible. You can't. You can't. And I'll tell you why. The Bible's clear on this from the beginning. The issue is your nature. Who you are. It's, 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 it's in your DNA. Like, people, you know, it's, it's not that you, uh, are a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Like, it's who you are. That's why you do it. It's not like you did it and now that's who you are. It's who you are. That, that's why you do it. It's called being fallen. When did the fall happen? When you said your first cuss word? When did it happen? Genesis 3. We talked about it. You know, our, we want to say forefathers, we could say our forefather and foremother fell, chose their own kingdom. That means they get everything that comes with that, includes us. We're fallen, like you can't do anything about it. We need a new nature. We need a nature that's for heaven. 
C.S. Lewis got an amazing book, my, my favorite book, called uh, The Great Divorce. And in it, he, he creates this scene. It's not really true, but it's just a fictional idea. Creates this scene where law, people from hell or people who have been lost have the opportunity to visit only the edge of heaven. And it, it says that their feet are being cut and stabbed by the grass. Because their bodies are not made for that place. They're not made for that place. You've got to have a new nature for heaven, not the one you have. And you can't change that. It's the same reason you can put a lion in a room with fruits and vegetables and whatever else that he can eat to sustain himself. And he's going to die. Starve to death because his nature is not to eat that stuff, even though it would keep him alive. Can't do it. You've got to have a new nature. Isaiah says, speaking of heaven, the lion will lie down with the lamb, right? The, the child will put his hand in the den of a cobra. That's a new nature. Lions eat lambs. Snakes bite. That's, that's the point. It's a new nature. You're no longer that thing anymore. Animal kingdom and us included. But listen to me. Hear me out. Until you inherit, or excuse me, until you can look at your innermost self and be honest, with God, heaven's out of your reach. I'm just telling you, until you can look at your inner self and be honest with God, heaven's out of your reach. It's called confession. Or in the UFC or mixed martial arts, as all our kids in this room do, I think, it's called tapping. I give, I give up. I surrender. I'm done. I'm beaten. I'm beaten. I'm done. I'm tapping. I'm finished. It's realizing that you are without perfection. I don't have a payment. I don't have one. It's realizing that. But if you can do that, if you can realize that, then it's evidence that God has begun the impossible in your life. If you can do that, God has already begun to do the impossible in your life. The grave that has you trapped into sin and death has been ripped open from the outside. Light has begun to shine in all of a sudden. Fresh air has started to surround your body and you can breathe. And you can see and you, you open your eyes and you see Jesus standing there with a smile and his hands out to you. Ready to lift you up and say, come here. I got you. I got you. That's grace, y'all. You can't earn that or buy that. You can't persuade that. You know, you, you can't gain it. But Jesus did it. Jesus lived the perfect life so that you can embrace that. Can't earn it. Can't demand it. Can't steal it. Can't take it. Can't buy it. But you can embrace it. He lived a perfect life. He died and he faced the death that we're all going to face and defeated it so that if you're holding to him, you're free of it. He can't have you. He can't have you because he beat it. He's stronger. He beat it. And what ends up happening when you realize that is you end up realizing that, Jesus, you can have my possessions, man. You can have my family. You can have all of it. All I want is you. Can I please have more of you, please? Like That's all you want. And man, if it stopped here, it'd be great, but it don't because as happens frequently among the disciples, Peter opens his mouth. 
Uh, I love Peter. He's one of my favorites because he was a thug. Peter says this. Look, look what he says. And we're finished up quick. Peter says, uh, verse 28. Look, Jesus, we left everything and followed you. Remember, who could be saved? We left everything and followed you. In Matthew's account, it says Peter replied, we've left everything and followed you. What then do we get? What do we have? And Jesus is so cool. You don't get mad. He don't pop off on Peter. Jesus was so patient with Peter. Uh, thank you. It's because I'm way worse than Peter. Uh, he, he said, he, he just looks at him and he tells him, yeah, you got a reward. Yeah, you, you get, you got something coming. But look what he says to get there. Verse 29. We'll hit it quick. Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left. No one, by the way. He's not just, not just you 12. Nobody who's left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake. And for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, like here on earth, houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with, with persecutions, and also in the age to come in eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Houses, land, families, it's all tied together. It's homes. It's homes. It's, it's not individuals. And it's not random rogue people wandering around. It's homes. It's homes. And the point he's making here is, guys, your sacrifice, the persecutions that you're facing and dealing with, they're going to carry the gospel to nations all over the world. They're going to carry the nation to, to nations everywhere. And dozens, hundreds, thousands, ultimately millions, and ultimately billions are going to become part of the kingdom of God. And that's going to make them family with you. That's going to make them family with you. Is is his mother going to replace your mother? That's not what he didn't say anything about replacing. He's just saying you're going to add. You're going to have more family. And if your actual family follows Christ too, then they're going to be in that kingdom as well. So you haven't even really lost them. All you've done is given them up in this world. You just let go of them in this world to the sake to grab Jesus. So could Jesus ask you to give up your family? Uh, She'll be here shortly. She's not here now, but you can ask Molly. I mean, most of y'all know you've been here. That's a real personal thing for us about a year ago. Y'all know. Some of you know what it's like to give up your family. And I'm not saying that as somebody who's bragging, because there's people I know who've moved overseas, the opposite side of the planet, and seriously given up family. I, I get that. I get that. Think how many lands, though, have been reached for the kingdom of God because of these guys. You realize 2,000 years later, you're only sitting here because of those guys? You are family. We're brothers and sisters with them. We are part of the family that he promised to them. Because they gave up theirs. Um, Jesus had a couple of little bombs here, and I'll finish with the last one. He added persecutions. We all know what that means. That just means it's not going to be easy. You're going to face struggle for this. But he also said the first will be last. So that means Molly can't brag about it. I can't brag about it. Y'all can't brag about it. Uh, nobody overseas can brag about it. The whoever is first in the kingdom up here, whoever is the, the first one there, the biggest one, whatever else, is last. 
And whoever was last has moved to first. Oh, great. That means I need to be dead last so I get to first. But what happens when you get to first? Now you move to last. And then last moves to first. The whole point is it's equaled out. There's only one. There's only one first. Everybody else is just there by grace. That That's the point. We're all just there by grace. I can't brag about it because remember what he said? With man, this is what? Impossible. But all things are possible with God. I'm going to end with this quote. I'm just going to read it to you and then we're done. Uh, this is from David Platt, and, and you may have heard this or read the book, but he said this. I think there's two common errors people make when they read this passage. First, some try to universalize Jesus' words, saying that it's always a command to his followers to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. But the New Testament doesn't support that. Even some of the disciples who admittedly abandoned much to follow Christ still had a home, likely still had a boat for the sake of work, probably had some kind of material support. So obviously following Jesus doesn't necessarily imply a loss of all of your private possessions and property. This causes much of us to breathe a sigh of relief. Thank goodness. But before we sigh too deeply, we need to see the other error here. In interpreting Mark 10, which is to assume that Jesus never calls his followers to abandon all their possessions to follow him. If Mark 10 teaches us anything, it teaches us that Jesus does sometimes call people to sell everything they have and give it to the poor. This means he might call you or me to do this. And I love this. He says, I love the way one writer put it. He wrote, listen to this. That Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. Let me say it again. That Jesus did not command all of his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would tell to do it. If you take a deep sigh of relief, I ain't got to get rid of my stuff. Thank goodness. You're going to be one of the ones he would probably come to and say, sell your stuff. That's what he's saying. Have you thought about it? If it burdens your heart that he might ask something like that of you, if it really burdens your heart, you might be more like this guy than you think. Just saying. All right. Stand up with me if you don't mind. And we're going to close up um, and be done here. Um, we're going to sing one more song, but listen, if you believe in Christ, how honest are, are you with your possessions? How honest are you? Could you ask him if he wants them? Would you wait for him? Uh, what if he wants land? What if he wants money? What if he wants stuff? What if he wants your family? I'm not talking about sacrificing them in some creepy, weird way. I'm saying letting go of them. You letting go of them. What if he wants that? Will you let him have it? Would you let him? Would you give it to him? I mean, think about it a minute. Let's close your eyes. Let's let's pray. But I want you to think about it a minute. What if Jesus said, "I got a plan"? I'm thinking about myself here too. What if Jesus said, "I got a plan"? This is going to bring so many people into this kingdom. I'm not going to tell you what that plan is, but you've got to let go of everything. And I'm going to do it through you. I mean, will you do it?
can't answer that. I mean, only you can answer that. Maybe we need to back up. Maybe you haven't tapped yet. Maybe you haven't really looked inside. Maybe you're still thinking there's something you're going to do that's going to impress him or make him be okay with you. It's impossible. But it's available. You can't earn it, but you can embrace it. Jesus is who he says he is. He does love you. Because if he loves this guy, and and knowing he's going to walk away, and he loves me, the filthy person that I am and have been, I know he loves you. I know he does. Can you look inside and say, Jesus, I let go. I'm done. I know who I am. I know I'll never be good enough. It's yours. I'm, I'm done. Take this sin off of me. Open my grave. Give me life. Let me see your face. I want to follow you. You tell him that. I'm, I, I'm, you don't got to repeat after me anything. Just tell him whatever you're feeling in your heart right now if that's you. And then I want you to tell us. Come tell me. We want to pray for you. Lord, you are amazing. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to get into it with other brothers and sisters and just celebrate who you are. Thank you again for these amazing kids that have been in the room. I know for parents sometimes that's a lot. Uh, but, man, we want our families to be families sometimes, at least once a month or so. But they've been so good today. Thank you for them. Lord, I pray that you open their eyes too to see and know who you are. And Lord, we love you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.